Unfulfilled promise, the 40-year shift from print to digital and why it failed to transform learning. Hi, I'm Tom Vanderark, and you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. The unfulfilled promise is the name of a paper that I contributed to Hoover Institution's retrospective on education reform in the 40 years since a nation at risk, uh, the report that really kicked off standards-based reform in the U.S., That 40-year standards movement really coincided with the global information revolution. And for schools, the shift from print to digital was probably the most significant change in how human beings learned since the printing press um, 650 years ago. It was a shift from information scarcity to abundance, uh, a shift from searching to sorting. It changed uh, what people learn and how they learn, uh, but not always for the better. Uh, Social media feeds have come to replace newspapers and YouTube videos have uh, emerged as the world's instruction manual. The shift in uh, to digital learning in American schools was gradual, uh, uneven, uh, often chaotic, always expensive. And while there was um, many observed improvements in engagement and uh, and a handful of effective new learning models launched, EdTech was largely ineffective at boosting traditional outcomes. A couple decades ago, I had a chance to work with Bill Gates and support support some new tech-enabled models. And recently, Bill summarized the situation this way. He said, computers haven't had the effect on education that many of us in the industry have hoped. There have been some good developments, including educational games and online sources of information, but they haven't had a meaningful effect on measured student achievement. And by uh, 2022, American schools were spending about $44 billion annually on ed tech, and that added about $750 per student, or about 4% uh, to school budgets. And again, without observed improvements in learning productivity or operating productivity. It looks like new schools, particularly those in networks, many of them manage networks, appear to be the best examples of scaled technology-enhanced learning models. Uh, These are networks that implemented new models with fidelity and uh, appear to have achieve strong results, both traditional uh, and and, uh, newer measured results. I want to take a trip in the the Wayback Machine and and do a eight-minute summary of the four big decades um, of progress that we've seen with EdTech. I hope you enjoy thinking back to a few of these um, dates in in EdTech history. All the way back to uh, 1983, when Apple introduced the Apple IIe computer, um, that was really the first education computer, but it was really relegated to the back of a lot of classrooms. And then in 1985, uh, Oregon Trail was released. I remember playing that with my girls and uh, loving that first experience with educational gaming. Microsoft introduced Windows in 1985, and then the World Wide Web um, was was really embedded in the early 90s and exploded in, in 1994, showed up on the cover of Time magazine. And that year, uh, the U.S. Department of Education released their 
first uh, EdTech paper, kind of a, um, a roadmap for U.S. schools. The second decade was 1994 to 2004. Uh, we called it Welcome to the Web. Uh, this timeline was developed, by the way, uh, by our friend Bruce Umstead, um, who's like me, worked in ed tech for 30 years. Um, that period really started um, uh, virtual learning. When I was a school superintendent uh, I, in Washington State, had the chance to start the Internet Academy, which became in, in about 2000. Uh, no, we started the Internet Academy in about 1996. And it became uh, the, the first statewide school. Florida Virtual started uh, the, the year after. Michigan Virtual started in 1998. Microsoft uh, supported the district where, where I was superintendent and uh, about 10 others and launched this Anytime Anywhere program. That was really the first uh, big network of schools uh, going one-to-one. In 1996, New Tech, Napa New Tech High School opened, and then a few years later, uh, the New Tech Network was launched. 1996 was the first E-rate program that helped schools uh, acquire affordable broadband. Then in uh, 1999 and 2000, we saw a bunch of really great school networks launch. High Tech High in San Diego, uh, Big Picture Learning in Providence, um, EL Education uh, in New York City. And then around 2002, we saw uh, the, the launch of Open Education Resources. Uh, the Hewlett Foundation uh, took that and became a real leader for 10 years, uh, making resources much more available, sort of marking the beginning of the end of textbooks as we knew them. In 2002, uh, I had a chance to help Maine start their uh, one-to-one laptop initiative. Uh, and that really launched uh, the next decade, the 2005 to 2015. We called it the rise of blended learning. That really kicked off with a, a new ed tech plan from the Department of Education. 2005, YouTube launched, which is still the biggest and most important um, learning platform in the world. Khan Academy launched in 2006. Uh, Apple introduced the iPhone in 2007. Hard to believe that that's only been around 15 years. Uh, same year, Google launched Google Apps for Education. Uh, Michael Horn and Clay Christensen wrote uh, Disrupting Class, kind of a, the early Bible for blended learning. Um, I3 grants were launched by the Department of Education. That was uh, Jim Shelton working for Arnie Duncan. Apple uh, released the iPad that became uh, really popular with elementary one-to-one programs. Then a, a real blockbuster change was in 2011 when Google launched Chromebooks. That just uh, dropped by almost an order of magnitude the uh, uh, the price barrier, and we're talking about two or three hundred dollar um, web appliances that made it much much easier and affordable for schools to go one to one. I published a book called Getting Smart, which really launched uh, our advocacy and advisory practice. Uh, in 2011, a bunch of foundations. Um, sponsored in Bloom, which was a really well-intentioned student, student data uh, initiative, but it blew up a couple years later uh, as a result of some privacy concerns. And 
to this date, we're still dealing with um, private data. In 2012, higher ed changed a lot. Uh, MOOCs were launched, Coursera and edX um, exploded with people taking free courses from the world's best instructors. Uh, Google launched Classroom in 2013. That quickly became the leading uh, ed tech platform. Same year, code.org really started advocating for computer science pathways. Uh, Common Core State Standards were launched. And, and then in 2015, we, uh, we saw OutSchool uh, be formed. And, and I would say that's really the, the beginning of the modern um, unbundled learning uh, era. And that kicks us off into the, this uh, last decade, uh, 2016, uh, really remote learning and beyond. In that year, uh, Google launched their Cardboard Expeditions. That was really the first time that on a wide uh, scale, we saw AR and VR in classrooms. That still hasn't matured um, a- as much as I thought. I'm, I'm seeing more and more of that in classrooms. Um, still going to be a big growth area, but uh, it is only about eight years old. By 2017, uh, almost every school in America was connected to the internet. Um, most of them were one-to-one. Only about a quarter had access to enough broadband. And so in 2017, 2018, a lot of us that were tech advocates were really celebrating that we were done with access, that everybody had access. Well, and then the pandemic happened and we found out that not every kid had access to a computer and not every school had broadband. And then more importantly, we found out that about uh, 20 million homes in America don't have adequate access. And so we really discovered a new uh, access problem in America. And we we all survived a few years of remote learning, which proved to be pretty disastrous for most students. Uh, it did result in the, a new movement of micro schools, uh, Prenda, which launched right before the pandemic, raised about 20 million uh, during the pandemic and uh, began supporting hundreds of small schools around the country. And we're, we're still excited about those new micro school models that um, operate in homes and community spaces uh, in, and inside school buildings as hybrid models. But um, one of the few good things that came from the pandemic was the, these networks of micro schools that have created new levels of opportunity. The last big change threshold in American ed tech was really the rise of generative uh, artificial intelligence in 2022. And for me, I think that ends the, uh, the information age, that 40 years of, of my career where we as a species tried to begin to make good use of, uh, of data, digital data. And it starts a new era of uh, human-computer interaction where human, where, where the interaction is uh, using natural language as the interface and where we're interfacing with a, a reasoning engine, a creation engine. And those are two really big differences that we're just beginning to understand how to incorporate into, uh, into education. Last year, we had uh, some useful guidance that came out from some of our partners 
um, AI for education and uh, teach AI are examples of shops that have begun to uh, help schools understand where and how to, to use generative AI. Uh, Khan Academy launched Conmigo, a, a promising AI tutor. Um, and then we're also excited about schools like uh, da-, da Vinci in Los Angeles. Um, their project Leo is a, to us a great example of using uh, GPT-4 to support uh, community-connected projects. It's a, a beautiful example of using the creative power of generative AI to help learners um, understand their own strengths and interests, understand a, a community problem, and then craft a project uh, based on what's important to the community, uh, what's important to them, uh, and then help them quickly uh, really deliver value to their community. And we're excited about that uh, kind of use of generative AI. And in higher education, we're all learning a lot from um, Ethan Mullock at Wharton. I, I just love how he has transformed the way he teaches entrepreneurship using generative AI, both to brainstorm um, new companies and, uh, and impact initiatives, but also to build those uh, very, very um, quickly. Um, to me, to, to summarize this new era that we're in, I think what's most important is for schools to begin to capture that sense of possibility of what young people can do learning with AI and uh, creating with AI. Uh, we'll link to a few of our uh, recent generative AI podcasts and our AN education publication uh, if you want to go into more detail on that. Let me just close out on um, on this EdTech paper um, with a, a couple thoughts on why EdTech really didn't transform learning the way I thought it could. Um, first, there, there's a set of barriers that we identified in the paper, uh, and that's the low change capacity and the decentralized uh, system that we have in America. Um, second, it's a time-bound system. It's still really controlled by a set of um, seat time requirements and uh, courses and credits. Um, and that system, uh, decentralized time-bound system, really has almost no um, R&D capacity, really compared to health uh, and healthcare, for example. Um, until 15 years ago, uh, there was almost no venture or private equity spent in education, and there was very limited um, public funding for R&D. We're starting to see both of those change in a, in a useful way, but we, there's still a big opportunity for more research and development. Uh, we still in America have um, uh, private infrastructure that... Um, Companies own student data. They have mostly black box models that they, they don't share information with uh, teachers and students. And we still um, are learning with uh, outdated uh, learning goals. And, and I think particularly given the rise of Gen AI, I have a, an opportunity to update learning goals. So a couple of recommendations that we make at the end of the paper uh, the first is that we just we need a lot more new models, uh, student-centered, uh, 
personalized mastery base models, what, what some uh, are calling Horizon 3 models um, that are much more accessible and equitable in results. Um, I, I, part of that, I think, is, is number two, is adding um, a new set of learning goals that include creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, uh, and entrepreneurship. Uh, we, we just had uh, Charles Fidel on the on the podcast, and he said entrepreneurship is the job of the future. That the idea of opportunity spotting, um, designing solutions, and delivering value to your community, uh, and doing it with AI—that's the new work. And we, we need schools need to capture that sense um, in their learning goals. Um, the, the third recommendation is really that uh, schools should do this in networks. This is really complicated work to create new learning models and to create a tech stack that supports those learning models. Um, it's much better to try to do this with other schools. And that could happen within a district or it could happen within a, a voluntary network like, like uh, New Tech Network or Yale Education um, or across the curriculum network, like Project Lead the Way, um, but uh, work together in networks to build and deploy new learning models. And then finally, um, as our friends at Project Unicorn um, advocate, data really should be portable and interoperable. We're heading for a world of credentialed learning where students will be able to demonstrate in, in rich and unique ways their skills and um, those credentials will drop into learner records that will be um, super portable uh, and learners will be able to permission their data out to colleges and scholarship organizations and, uh, and employers. And so data interoperability is really key to the future. So 40 years, it's been um, eventful. Uh, it's been confusing. It's been chaotic. It's... Uh, added to the cost of schools. It hasn't quite lived up to the hope that many of us had, um, but particularly with the rise of Gen AI, I think the next 20 years um, are, are gonna be uh, much more productive. I think we'll see a lot more tangible uh, benefits in, in human development. Um, I look forward to being part of that and, uh, and continuing our dialogue about uh, innovations for equity with you uh, take a look at this paper and the other papers in the Hoover series. It's really a, a thoughtful uh, and I think important series. Thanks for going on this journey with us. And until next week, keep learning and keep leading and keep innovating for equity. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.